Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. But I'm thrilled to welcome my man, Marcus Glover, to the show today. It's been a long time in the making. Um, I wish the, the context of our conversation was a little bit different, and I definitely want to have you on again in the near future to talk specifically about your career. But today, we have an incredibly important conversation around racism in America. Marcus, how are you doing today? Man, I'm, I'm taking one day at a time. Today's a good day, um, but I, I can't lie to you, Adam. You're a friend and a brother, and... Uh, it's been rough, man. It's um, it's been it's a situation where, you know, one day I I feel like boundless optimism, and then another day I'm just gripped with anxiety and sadness over things. Um, but uh, I feel I feel great today. I'm happy to be here. Awesome, and man. To be honest, man, I'm just so impressed with you. Like I'm I'm impressed with the you know the self-made Anderson Cooper, you know, you, <laughs> in you some just, ways, you just willed this all together. It's deeply impressive. Man. I, I love it, man. So let's kick things off. And anybody who's uh, a regular podcast customer knows how we like to do it. I'm going to do it proper and give my man Marcus the full podcast treatment. So what do they do? They do like a, like they have those clickers and they, and they start the show. So we're going to, we're going to click this thing off here. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast today. I bring you a very special edition, a bit of a different conversation than we typically have here and focus on some real talk around racism in America. And our guidance storyteller will be one of my main mentors, someone I deeply respect and hold in the highest regard, Mr. Marcus Glover. And I've known Marcus for, we've known each other for almost seven, eight years now. Yeah. Um, we met uh, during my time when I was working on the agency side at Irwin Penland and Mr. Glover was representing a pretty awesome wide receiver who's making a name for himself in the last few years, Mr. Tavon Austin, uh, and, and, you know, through Verizon and we got to meet him, which was pretty cool. Uh, and Marcus has been a shining beacon, um, for me and so many others and had to be a service to his community, his fellow man and everyone that truly comes in contact with him. And I am personally grateful for him so many ways, but one in particular is introducing me to defy ventures, which is a hundred percent changed my view on so many things, including, you know, black, white, brown, you know, looking at my fellow man and, and really more important, not more important, but equally important um, is the prison system. And, you know, just the whole correctional institution concept in America and how freaking twisted it is and got me out of my comfort zone. I mean, you take a, you know, a 41 year old, you know, dad bod Jewish guy from Long Island and throw him into, you know, a correctional facility with, you know, felons it's it's scary, man. And that'll wake you up real quickly. So thank you for that eye opening um, experience. And I don't even know if it sounds selfish, but thank you for allowing me to give back to others. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but you know that was that was a pretty awesome experience. And for anybody who does not know Marcus, here's your official intro. Uh, he's a su successful entrepreneur, consummate storyteller, and his breadth of experience and expertise at weaving together relevant trends, cultural influences, and technologies have made him a sought-after advisor and speaker. This guy is a man currently founding partner of the private equity firm M. Glover Capital. Where'd, where'd you get that name from? And board chair of Defy <laughs> <Long> Ventures. <laughs> board chair of Defy Ventures that focuses on prison reform through education and guiding current and formerly incarcerated men and women to earn their second chance. And again, today, we are going to have an uncomfortable and very necessary open and honest conversation that is critically important and how to turn words into action. And at the very least, it's going to be two friends who are going to have a chat and we're going to walk away with an empathetic understanding of the other's point of views, experiences, viewpoints, and belief. Mr. Marcus Glover, welcome to the podcast. Well, you you forgot the most important part of my bio, which is I respect the black T-shirt rule on the podcast. So clearly I came dressed for the occasion. So. You did. And anyway, and thank you, man. Seriously. Of course. And it's yeah. and it's kind of turned into to my uniform for, for a while here. I, I find that, you know, my mom always said that I have a face for radio. So I have to make sure that I do everything <laughs> I can to make, you know, make this all look good here. And everyone joining across all the platforms, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, YouTube, and my one viewer on Twitch, uh, who's some 14-year-old girl uh, in the middle of the country. Thank you for joining us today. We're working on that one. So let's jump in, man. You know, we're going to have some real talk today. You and I go way back. We've been having a lot of conversations leading up to this public conversation. And we both agreed that we're going to keep it real. Um, we may say some things that make each other feel uncomfortable, but we're going to speak our truths. 
we're not going to pass judgment and we're going to walk away from this in the same place as friends from where we started right now. Well, I mean, yes. Uh, and yes to all that. And I think I'm here because I hope that we can embody the kind of behavior and conversation that needs to happen in every dimension and sector of our society. I think that if there's any, you know, you can't really legislate your way out of how people feel, right? You know, it's hard to put legislation around hearts. It's hard to legislate misunderstanding or bias. There are things that you can do, stop gaps in society, you know, road bumps, off ramps mm -hmm. to racism, but racism, and that's not the only malady. There's sexism, there's a gender inequality, there's tons to look at. But I think it's really until that we get to a place where we can start to share each other's experiences and gain a measure of empathy and respect for each other based on having difference of experiences. Like, I personally believe that uh, the creed of Martin Luther King and others is very true. Like, we are all the same. We're all human beings. What does begin to separate us is our experiences. And to me, so much of what has deteriorated, you know, in the media and other um, platforms is the ability to, it's, it's crazy because technology should be the force that brings us together. And yet it is just the it's echo chamber. It's, it's allowing people to sink deeper into um, their own echo chamber, their most closely held beliefs and creating an inability and an inflexibility uh, towards others. And so, you know, I, I hope that out of sameness, we can begin to look at difference. So that's part of uh, my hope today. Amen. I love it. And, you know, I, I just always appreciate how you, you keep it real. Um, you know, you, you see other people's point of views and you bring your experience to the conversation in a way that's enlightening and uh, just straightforward. So let's talk about your experience, um, you know, specifically over the last couple of weeks. I mean, listen, you've been, you've been experiencing experiencing, you know, systematic racism, you know, your entire life. We've had a lot of conversations about it, but let's talk specifically about the the last couple of weeks in your life. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, this may be an opportunity um, in my last few talks. I've done an exercise and this could be a, a an interesting experience for the audience that's tuned in. So if everyone that is listening will indulge me, I'm going to ask and everybody watch. to put their right hand in the air and all five fingers in the air. And basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask a series of questions. And as I ask the questions, if you can affirm, meaning if you can agree with the question that I ask, then I want you to put a finger down. Okay. So let's just try one test question. Um, put a finger down. If today is a beautiful sunny day. Okay. Put a finger down if it is sunshine and not raining. Okay. All right. Those were the test questions. All right. So now let's go for it. Let's do a, do a little live experiment here. All right. So first thing I want to ask you is to put a finger down if you have ever been stopped or detained by the police for no reason at all. Probably put at a, some point. Okay. Put a finger down. If you have asked your children in the last week if they're carrying their cell phone and if it's charged and if they know where the record button is. Put a finger down if you have fear that your children may have a brutal confrontation with the police. Put a finger down if you have ever been called a racial slur. Put a finger down if you, your children, have ever been held at gunpoint by the police. I'm going to put one finger back up. Okay. Because it's not to any extreme that you've been through. So I could do this pretty much endlessly and I will run out of fingers consistently. And... I hope that 
in that little short exercise with just a series of five questions, I hope that we can see that we can look at each other the same and yet the experiences that we lived can be so dramatically different. The person that you may be staring at walking down the street may have in fact been traumatized by racism, may have in fact been traumatized by aggressive over-policing. Now, you asked the question. I, I actually feel like I have been pretty fortunate in my life. I grew up very middle class, um, two educated educators for parents um, in the home. I went to very privileged elite prep schools. I went away to four-year university. I've had a pretty lucrative career in you know, a pretty elite business of advertising. And yet at the end of the day, because of the color of my skin, I was found to be, you know, no higher than a common thug or criminal. And what is really more hurtful is I don't even ask for sympathy. Like imagine a four and an eight year old seeing their father held at gunpoint, chin on the ground and guns pulled at them on them at the age of four and eight. So, you know, it without it warrant, really, without for no warrant. reason, for no without, reason, no I mean, provocation. And without like when I asked what was the, the description of the criminal, it was stutters. And I, I just fit the description of, uh, of a crime in process. And so you just with your kids in the car, with, with my kids. So, you know, you just realize that first and foremost, what we've got to get to is a place where we're starting to really empathize with people's lived experiences. Now, it's by no accident that our country and our world are on fire. Um, today is actually the one month, I don't want to call it anniversary, but it's one month since the day that George Floyd was brutally, brutally murdered. And I think what was exceptional about that was it was finally a moment that, first of all, we're all dealing with a pandemic. Uh, the amount of joblessness in the country. It's a powder uh, keg. It's a powder keg, right? And finally, people see the complete callousness that a police officer for, as Dave Chappelle talks about, eight minutes and 45 seconds. But what is so like disconcerting is, as Dave Chappelle said, like putting his hands in his pockets and staring into the camera. You know, it, it just... Um, the callousness, I think, is something that we were all shocked and stunned by. And I think that is hopefully beginning to open people up to how our experiences can be so dramatically different. Yeah. Let's see what Ryan's saying here. Uh, he's trying, Mark, uh, Ryan's saying, Marcus is trying to be nice, warm, and fuzzy about it. The bottom line is comfort people to get comfortable having these uncomfortable conversations. And, you know, this, this is the, the starting point. Uh, and these are the conversations that need to be had. Listen, I, you and I talk about it. We're never, especially in this country, going to get everyone on the same page. There's, there's too much that that divides us. But these are the first steps that we have to take and put it out there. Right. And listen, like this is not the first and it's not going to be the last, you know, black man or woman that's a victim of unwarranted police brutality. But now's the point when we have to open up eyes and, and start to take action. Well, yeah. And I just want to address um, uh, the brother's uh, point. Uh, Marcus is being nice and warm and fuzzy about it. Um, but really what Marcus is really trying to do is, um, you know, there's an old saying, don't hate the, the player, hate the game, right? And I think that is more and more, there's obviously some bad apples in society, clearly. But I think what we have to get to is a place of understanding that the game is rigged. And that is the thing that is hateable and condemnable and that it's it's like the um the death star in star wars mm -hmm. that is what needs to be crushed systemic racism which has been built over centuries is what we're is really our common fight so let, let's break down systematic racism for for folks who do not know what that really means what's your take on systematic racism well systemic racism is you know, the idea that we had this guiding philosophy um, 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That, that was our guiding philosophy um, when we were started. But the truth is, at the same time that we were saying all men are created equal, the reality is it was also understood that black people were three-fifths of a man. Right, they didn't even count for a full... Right, so I didn't... I, so now you take that recipe and you bake that into every institution, right? Banking, religion, politics, real estate, right? You put that three-fifths or even worse into every institution and you allow that to cook over several centuries, you're gonna come out with a flawed model. Now, the icing on the cake is there were existing institutions, but you know there were institutions that were created to be the absolute safeguards and the dungeons of this supremacist mindset or this institutional racism, and that's mass incarceration, right? So that was like the bridge or the grandchild of the plantation system and white it was right privacy. afterwards. And so that so succeeded it. If you couldn't diminish the value of people in the got in the governing institutions, you created a whole new infrastructure. An economy. That, and, and, an, and, an economy a, and a slave economy that's still, you know, what's what's the pennies on the dollar? Fractions of a penny. Well for labor. I mean, I, I'll give it to you even uh, even more damaging than that. You ever been into a, a DMV? Yes. Yeah, you have a passport? Yep. You ever go to an immigration office? No. Okay. Um, you ever sat at a chair at a DMV? Yeah, those big wood benches, man. Leaned on a desk? Okay, that's all made by prison labor. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's not IKEA purchased furniture. No. Right? So um, the, the commonly held cliche is that people behind bars are making license plates. No, they're making furniture. They and are profit making, for somebody. <laughs> well, like all, you know, that, that's your free yeah. Ikea furniture business. Um, state um, hand sanitizer in state office buildings. That's all made behind bars. Um, the complete irony is masks that are being worn, you know, PPE that's being worn by corrections officers is actually being made in prison, yet they're not even being distributed to the incarcerated. I mean, it's so heavily weighted too. And I mean, we could we could spend the whole day talking about all the injustices in the prison systems and the and the and the bail process and how many how many you know black men and women are behind bars right now waiting for trial, being infected and you know just in the line of fire. Well, yeah, and I mean, you know, part of what I want to hopefully do, hopefully, folks are maybe curious about this conversation, want to take some notes, challenge me, like go online, look up the things that we're talking about, right? So my, my hope is that I can ground these conversations in fact. So it's not, you know, one person's opinion over the next. So let, let's just start with some established fact. Mm -hmm. uh, black people in America are 13% of the population. There's about growing to about 40 million um, black people in America. So the, the, percent, the minority percent, it's still a minority percentage wise. 13%. Right. Yet how much of the incarcerated jails, prisons, and detention centers are black? Well over 30%, right? So um, black men are half of all of the incarcerated, right? I think I've actually been fortunate enough to take you inside, if I'm not correct, haven't I? Yeah, I've been I will to... tell you, the first time that I went to Rikers, I, uh, I was aghast. You know, I'm a bit of a movie fan, and it felt like Rikers was a place for defective robots because well over 90% of the people inside Rikers are African-American. And, and, it's, and, it, and it's, it's like a societal statement that somehow being born black in America means you are defective, you know, and your outcomes are as defective as you are, right? And so it only takes a little bit of scratching the surface that you begin to understand that the system is rigged, right? That's, I think that's the main point.
Yeah, ab- absolutely. So I want to go back to something we did a little bit earlier, and I think it starts a conversation of what it really means to be, you know, what white privilege is. And I think when it, when it first started coming to the surface again, no one really understood what it meant, right? It was like, am I am I am I entitled to something? Am I privileged? That's that's not what it means. And I think it goes back to the hand up exercise. Privilege means never having to think about those things. And I've been explaining this to friends too, having the conversation. I never once am worried if I ever get pulled over that I even in a shadow of a doubt that something's going to happen to me. Never. Yeah. I That's mean, privilege. It, it is. And um, I would venture to say that in your circle of black friends and in the circle of friends of everyone in this broadcast, if they would run a straw poll of their black friends, particularly black men, there's not a single one of us that has not experienced some aggressive method of policing. And, right? and, to, and usually to an extreme, to, and to, to a real to physically extreme. violent extreme or arrest and or arrest for nothing. You know, some type of slur gets mentioned, um, being stopped for no reason being considered uh, suspicious or a suspect for doing nothing, right? And so it just shows that we have two completely realities. And it's why I appreciated the comedian John Stewart, who uh, earlier this week had a really brilliant Q&A in the New York Times. And he said, we're looking at the problem wrong. He said, the problem isn't the police. The problem is that there's two Americas. And the police have a mandate to keep one America away from the other, right? And so that is when you begin to understand, like, our lived experiences are very different. And it doesn't matter who you are, your color will always bring you to the level of being a suspect, being, you know, um, yeah, so... I mean, that's, that's nothing that, that I could even fathom or wrap my head around. And I think that level of awareness is, is part of it. Right. And that brings us to the next thing, like with so many conversations out there with media swaying things in different ways. And I've had a lot of talk. A lot of my white friends feel like we like, should I be apologizing? Is there something I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for? You know, how 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 should I, I, I feel? And I keep telling them, I go right now, it's not about us. It's about listening. It's about listening to a fellow group of human beings who are going through some shit right now for not, not right now for a long time. And they're sick and tired of it. The same thing, the conversation happens around the protests and the rioting, right? They're like, they don't understand what the rioting is. Like everyone says, uh, not everyone, they're like, oh, they're just be thugs are being thugs, right? And I'm like, that's fucking racist, man. Chill on that. I mean, there's a certain sect in any group during any civil discourse or protesting that's going to take advantage of it. Right? Well, and then yeah, they say, I mean, why are they burning their own towns? Why are they burning? Isn't that bullshit? Isn't that counterintuitive? They're, you know, they're, they're destroying their own businesses. What's that all about? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah, that was like know, a 10 part. Well, yeah, but I think, you know. That's how I feel, and that's what I hear, man. Well, you know, so my whole point of view, I get a lot of those conversations as well. Um, and, you know, I raise one really, really important thing. Are we, all, are we centering everything on our own experience? Or can we rise above, can we show a bit of maturity to understand someone else's experience. To me, that's like the key, you know, um, crucible of the whole conversation is, so are we saying that as a white man, because I've never had any infractions in the police, that it doesn't exist, right? Because that's a position of privilege to be in. You know, here's the interesting thing. Let me explain what privilege actually is. Let me ask you a question. What is the opposite of love hate nope indifference right hate is actually an equal if you will emotional response as is love because it's a strong feeling just in another direction in another direction indifference is the opposite of love right and so there's an element of privilege that is the true form of hate which is indifference i'm indifferent to the struggles of others I don't see it. I make the choice not to see it. And when I'm presented with it, I don't identify with it. I don't look into Adam's experience. I don't look into Adam's ancestors' experience and understand their trauma. Why? Because 
I haven't experienced it, right? That's indifference. And I think that is, in so many ways, the malaise that America suffers from is this indifferent attitude towards the suffering and the experiences of others. Do you feel as optimistic as I do when I look out at those protests and you've been right there with them that there's a mix. It's not just blacks that are marching. It's a mix of young people, old people, all different colors, but it's a lot of young people that they're, they're confident and they're, they want to make this change, this generational change. Is this going to, is going to change things? And I mean, of course it is. Gonna break indifference? Like that to me is like one of the like optimistic things I see about this whole, this whole situation happening. Well, I mean, Yes, I think that it is, it's a powerful moment because it is a broad coalition. And I, I think getting back to that core theme of empathy, I think that this is a moment where you see the anger, the frustration, um, the feeling of disgrace that non-Black people feel towards what's happening in the world. So there, it's, it's, it's a moment that to be fair, I live on the Upper West Side in New York City. Um, to see a 5,000 head protest marching down Columbus Avenue of a majority white you know, uh, protest body screaming Black Lives Matter, I think that is a moment that the world has never seen. And that is a seed that will grow you know, of really, really strong tree. You know, it will result in the ripple effects of the next election. It will re result in a new crop of legislators introducing new ideas that foster a greater sense of equality and, and dismantling of these systems that have created um, systemic harm. It will. Yeah, I, I mean... From, from your mouth to God's ears, but how do we do these actionable things? Like how do we close the wage gap, right? How do we, how do we you know, uh, uh, make a difference in, in poverty? Because poverty is a tremendous contribution to this, this whole situation. Things like redlining. I mean, where do we even start, Marcus? Well, I mean, we start by having these conversations. Uh, we start by, you know, the sad part about it. I think the, the absolute saddest part about it is our educational system is doing a really pretty horrible job um, because what, you know, this is, this is, I wanna actually unpack this a little more deeply for us. Um, I want us to ground in this moment on June 25th, 2020. This is a moment, a global pan, a hundred year event, a global pandemic, a crisis around social justice that has been brewing and brewing for years is finally coming to a head. And in many ways, it doesn't matter who you are, white, black, brown, any shade, we are one and we are most importantly, we are all traumatized. This is a traumatizing moment for us. It's very challenging. It's challenging to our psyche. It's challenging to our emotions, okay? So that's really important to realize is because Privilege is, all, is frequently seen as the antidote for trauma. You know, when people have experienced tremendous trauma in their families, what do they tend to do? Bury it. Yeah. There's that thing in our family we don't talk about, right? Skeletons That's in the what, closet. Yes. Just keep it away because it's too painful to touch, right? And as we know, that can only be a game you can play for so long before time catches up with you. And this is a moment that time has caught up with us and now our, all of our issues are on front street. The truth is the educational system has been the place to keep the reality away from our young minds. The reality is everything you mentioned, uh, systemic inequality, the, the wealth inequality gap, systemic poverty, redlining, um, the lack of um, family and generational wealth among, amongst black and brown people. These are things, black people are not uh, lazy by nature. You know, we have been systemically marginalized from every institution that governs our lives and put in a place of a deficit, right? So, 
So to answer your question, once again, I think John Stewart said it really well, and I hope your audience pays attention to this. For the last hundred years, black people have been fighting for equality. For the last four and 500 years, whites, non-blacks, have been fighting for equity and building equity. So we're in a place where we haven't built family generational wealth. Having 400 years of servitude slavery, where we gave free labor to build a country and not paid a dime so that the last generation has really nothing to pass on to the next other than a wish, a hope, and a prayer is how we show up in 2020. And these are some of the undeniable realities. And so now what you're beginning to see is some of the major banks. Some You asked about private equity and venture capital. Yeah, I was going to save well, that for later, but let's get into well, it, man. Well, let's get into it let's because into the it. truth let's, is... I mean, listen, a lot of people... Yeah, get it. let's get into it, man. No, I mean, you know, the, the reality is very, very plain. It's in black and white, which is that so many of the dominant, whether it's the Barclays or some of the dominating global banks, they're in a position of having billions and near trillions in assets and holdings. Why? Because they financed plantation slavery. They financed the ships that were um, you free know, money. Free, it's free money. And by the way, oh, it is. it's showing market rate returns. So you do that over a series of hundreds of years. Well, now you're, you're building generational wealth. You're building, you know, record returns. And so, you know, you have really brilliant visionaries, people like Robert Smith. If you're not familiar, Robert Smith is probably one of, he's, well, the wealthiest African-American, but he's also one of the most, runs one of the most successful hedge funds called Vista Partners, which everyone should look up. Um, and he's a, successful in his commercial transactional world, but he's also thinking about ways of transforming this wealth inequality gap. And what he has introduced is a 2% pledge that banks, commercial banks, they pledge 2% of their net profits towards going to CDFIs. And CDFIs are the, the community lending banks in places like Harlem, the South Bronx, and others, so that you can increase the amount of deposits that can then make loans to, you know, black and brown small businesses. The crazy thing is it's something like if you totaled all of the assets that are held by the leading, um, leading uh, banks, something like $13 trillion. Amongst black banks, the holdings is something I think less than $100 billion, something like $80 billion. Um, so it just goes to show that there is this tremendous inequality, and it is a food chain, right? So if you don't start with a priority, with the lending institutions up top, it doesn't trickle down to the community lending banks. It doesn't then trickle down to small business. It doesn't trickle down to jobs created. Right. right. So and, into, into the, the tax, into the taxes, into schools, into resources, into police, into everything. I mean, you know, I hope that your audience uses this as an opportunity to learn what might be some new terms. Racial redlining. Right. This was a government policy. This was taxpayer funded programs where people would sit in a conference room. They would look at geographical maps around the country. They would look at zip codes where there were black and brown communities, and they would draw a red line. People should and look at some of these maps. It's out of control. It's like a three-year-old drone. Right. So once those maps were drawn, they would say that this population and this geography is unbankable, right? Those maps then went to banks. Banks go, okay, well, we can't bet. We, there's we're not going to approve no, loans. Or there's no there. services there, so we're not going to build a bank there. No banks get built in these communities. There's no jobs. No jobs. Now you have census data that reflects there's no jobs, there's no banks. Now what happens? The census data then gets interpreted by the government. We're going to pull fire, we're going to pull police. And now you have these 
you know, neighborhoods. Educational funding goes. Educational funding. After school. After school, healthcare. Yeah, health, everything. So so it becomes, this is what the idea of systemic racism is, right? And so what I think the point is, and I hope that your audience emphasize, uh, picks up what I'm trying to emphasize, going back to what the first gentleman wrote, Marcus is not being warm and fuzzy. Marcus is trying to paint a picture. Don't hate the player, hate the game. You as a white person, your privilege allows you to ignore these issues. Your privilege allows you your Jamba Juice, your Mocha Frappuccino, your, uh, you know, Soul Cycle, and a largely insulated existence. But you're no longer immune for these, from these, these realities of your citizenry around you. You're no longer immune to the aggressive over-policing that is done in communities of color, which is by no accident either, right? So that's what this whole idea of shifting from privilege to being anti-racist is, is actually now looking at these institutions that are creating systemic harm to people of color. Let's talk about that, anti-racist. Like it's 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 not enough just to be, you know, like now all these, I don't wanna call them new terms because I don't know if they, I don't know if anti-racist is, is, a, is a new term. Same thing with white privilege, all these things coming back to the surface, but like, you know. Uh, well, it is a new term, right? It is, I, because I think for the, the foundational thing, the foundational thinking is, and people say, I'm a kind person, I'm not racist. No one's gonna argue that. But the point is, it's not about an individual's character right now. It's about the recognition that there are institutions that have been built that either create advantage for some or disadvantage for others. Of course. And you cannot turn a blind eye to those things anymore. So that's what this whole idea of being anti-racist is. It's not about, I have black friends. I will actually make one more point, which is we do see how in New York City, a bastion of liberalism, how a woman who's very liberal, liberal, you know, liberal education, liberal values, works for a bank, she can walk into Central Park, get into a disagreement with someone of a different race, and in an instant, she can organize all of the machinery of white supremacy to say to a black man, I'm going to call the police and I'm going to tell them that there is an African-American man threatening me. Because in an instant, you know that- That's your fault. It, I, can, I, can, I can point a gun at you, right? And so that is the level of dismantalization that we're talking about when we're talking about being anti-racist is, right? Is like dismantling systems, but dismantling this weaponized racism that can be used indiscriminately against people of color. Weaponized racism. That's that's another one, too. And, and you know, I, I want to jump into politics for a little bit and we're not going to talk about our current president now, but I want to talk about this idea of voter suppression. Like we saw what just happened with the, you know, the primaries or is it Kentucky, right, where they literally took a whole freaking city or state and they made the only place you could go to vote is literally, you know, this convention center in the middle of nowhere, which they had the doors locked forever and the other shit there. This has to end. I mean, you know, that that is again, these are the tools. These are the hand grenades of keeping this system of privilege in place. You know, let's just have a, we're, we're here to have an honest conversation, right? Okay, so I just, I, you, I wanna ask you a question. What are white people so afraid of? I'm gonna tell it, it's, it's our, it's infringement on our, on our safety and our property. I mean, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you the real example here. Um, about two and a half, I live in a, a I would say, overly majority white middle upper middle class neighborhood in long island and the town next to us uh freeport i would say is at least i don't have the stats in front of me probably at least minimum 50 percent minority um and we'll go back about three weeks ago uh when the blm protest started and news came on social media that a group of folks from 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 freeport wanted to march peacefully down the main street the main street that connects our town and their town merrick road runs you know, east to west throughout most of Long Island, especially Nassau County. And all they wanted to do was march. So they organized and about 25 folks, you know, lined up in front of the Trader Joe's. And uh, I would say out of the 25, at least half of them were white, right? And they had some signs. They were very peaceful. The police were there to just make sure nothing got out of hand. And then there was a handful of local residents, about 15 or 20 of them, that were literally getting in their faces, 
And they didn't even need to say any racial slurs, but they said, why are you marching here? Why do you have to be here? Go back to your town. Go back to where you came from. The two Americas. I heard this and saw this literally less than a quarter mile from my house. Literally up the block, make a right, and you're right there. Marcus, I was, I was sick to my stomach. I said, how could this be happening in my, in my own neighborhood? And it really just brought everything to light for me. But fast forward two days later, after this literally blew up on social media, hashtag Merrick blew up, Snoop Dogg was talking about it. Literally, our town was painted like the literal, like this is a shining, a dim example of fucking racist suburban America right here. The next day, 1,500 people showed up to protest. The following day, there was 4,500 people protesting through our suburban town. Now, people started to get upset. I saw it all over social media. I, I heard people talking about getting your guns ready. I was like, what? I was like, what? That, that's what you're scared of? And they're not so scared of the protesters. I think they're scared of the riots and everything that happened from it because it wasn't separated. But what happened was, Marcus, and I'll be straight up with this, the protesters, about I'd say about 1,500 of them, they, they made a right turn off the main street and they started walking down into our, you know, into the neighborhood streets. So my question while we're having real talk is, what is the purpose of that? Is that antagonistic or is it to make it a point and get in our faces and say, hey, we're here. We want you to listen and we want you to see us. And now you can see why you know, people, would, people would, were scared because they see the protests and all it would take is one asshole on either side to fucking yeah, like this. See, what I want to understand is I mean, what I'm is. You what real, is I'm just going to be straight up what happened. No, man. I, listen, what I want to understand is what is our neighborhood? You said our neighborhood. Who is our Right. That, that's a very good question there. And, and that could be interpreted two different ways. I meant it in the literal sense, meaning my neighborhood where I live, not like our, like as in white people. But I think a lot of those people that were the counter protesters, that's exactly the, the way they were fucking thinking. And that's yeah. a problem. I, right. So there's, you know, um, now I think if you projected this fear, as you point out, first of all, let's acknowledge that there's an element of tribalism. 100%. Right. So we're, my side, your side, We've, your town, my, my town. side, your side. We have become much more tribal in the past, you know, decade or more than I think at any other time. So there now, is now this define, mentality. Define tribal for everybody. Your, well, your it on. could be tribal, you know, so I spend a bit of time outside of the country. I spend a bit of time in Spain and people often say to me, um, what, what are you doing there? It's racist there. Don't you feel racism? Aren't you afraid? I tell people, I don't necessarily feel racism. I feel unfamiliarity and I feel like an outsider, right? I feel like I'm not in the tribe. And I think people look at me like I'm not in the tribe. I think the difference with some of my experiences, unlike in America, Spain is not a gun culture. So I don't fear for my life. That's an interesting point. Right? So... The point of that matter is there are some places in America, I will tell you, my friend Adam, I won't go. I won't go to certain states. As a black man. As a black man, I won't go to some open carry states, right? Because I fear that with this tribal, unchecked tribal mentality and tribal mindset and the ability to possess a, a, a firearm, it look at what happened to Ahmad Arbery, right? That was a tribal mindset that said, this is an outsider. I have the capacity and state-sponsored ability to carry a weapon, right? So these are the things that create this, um, I think this historic moment, this historic reckoning that we're experiencing in America, you know? But I, I think part of what you're hitting on is, again, how do we get out of this tribal mindset? If we truly believe that there's one America, if we truly believe that we're all human, we're all the same people separated by our experiences, you know, how do we begin to get out of this tribal mindset? And how the hell do we get out of it when we have shit going on in Charlottesville and all these other crazy places in the United States? Where, when are we going to get on the same page or even close to a point where we could take actionable measures to make differences, to make a difference? Well, I think part of what the world is saying to us at this point, Adam, is people aren't waiting anymore. I think that these protests are showing that they're not going away. Um, I think Freddie has just indicated education. Education is absolutely critical. 
um, being able to tell an unvarnished truth. You know, I saw some, a meme on uh, social media the other day. It said that, you know, we were taught that George Washington had wooden teeth. The reality is he had teeth in his mouth from an enslaved African. You know, we're taught these fables that are the roots of advantage, right? We're never told the unvarnished truth, the accomplishments. You were never taught that intellectuals like W.E.B. Du Bois, Booker T. Washington, these were people that could run the Federal Reserve now. You know, they could run divisions and departments and cabinet ministries within the U.S. government because of how forward thinking they were in moving African Americans out of a, a position of pure deficit into a place where they could sustain themselves in this country. You were never taught. I defy you to tell me that you were taught about Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Did you ever learn that in school? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know anything about it until Juneteenth. I, I, I'm going to even go even one better. When did you hear about Juneteenth? I know June 17th. I, yeah, right. right. I mean, I'm not, I'm making a joke, but like, no, it, until, right? like yes. and, I mean, until our president took credit for making it famous. Right. 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 So these are the, some of the things that, you know, one of the very concerning moments that we're having a cult in, a, in our culture right now is the celebration of these icons and monuments. Yeah, let's talk about monuments for a little bit, man. Well, let, let, I would like to hear what you, you think. Uh, there, there's there, there, I have two different perspectives on them. One, I, I think if you think about them literally, they were, they were put there at a time and place to show dominance in certain areas. And then I think if we fast forward to today, right, like by, take, by, by leaving them up, does it show as a reminder for everything that we're fighting towards or is a move to take them down to destroy them? Right? Do we leave them up as a reminder for something we never want to go back to? Right? I mean, you could kind of use the same idea. Why do they keep the concentration camps up there, too, and not just level them all? Right? Is it showing as a reminder? I mean, I don't know if it's an extreme analogy there, but to the same kind of concept, do we leave them up as a reminder where we don't want to go, or do we take them down so we can move forward? So uh, when I was a teenager, I had uh, an experience that I hope that every person of color, I hope that every white person can share in this experience. The experience is I was fortunate enough to travel to Africa, to West Africa. Um, I traveled to a place called Dakar, Senegal, and I traveled to a place called Accra, Ghana. These are the capitals of both of those countries. And what's unique about them is they sit on the shores of the Atlantic, and these were the major um, they were the, the, uh, the jumping off point, if you would, for the transatlantic slavery, for transatlantic slavery. So in Dakar, Senegal, there's a place called Gore Island, and there are slave dungeons there. In Accra, Ghana, there's a place called Castle Elmina, or Elmina Castle, which is also, these were the major shipping points for bringing Africans into the Americas, right? So my, my point to you is, I know the tremendous pain and trauma that the Holocaust created for the world and created for Jewish people. In the same way that the, um, the monuments live in Dachau and Auschwitz, those monuments stand in Africa. However, what I humbly implore is that nowhere in the world is there place for a statue of Joseph Goebbels or Adolf Hitler. Hey, and Freddie what I Freddie want Singer you to right understand there. is when black people have to walk under a statue of Robert Lee, this is the most humiliating, and it is a form of dominance, right? So look, here's the reality is that at some point in the history, there is going to be some town that's gonna want to celebrate Barack Obama and create a statue. At another point in time, someone's gonna want to create a statue that celebrates Donald Trump. Because you know what? There's a love-hate relationship with every leader. But I think there is something different about those who were responsible for creating some of the most traumatic, harmful, um, horrific experiences in our human experience. And those statues absolutely need to come down. 
I'm with you, man. So let's let's talk about one more piece here before we shift gears and talk about action and positivity here. And I want to talk about the whole PPE loan situation where ex-felons are ineligible for it. I applied for my SBA loan. Literally, they gave me more money than I know what to do with, with a minimal amount of questions. It was easy peasy for me. Why are they excluding ex-felons who have done their time, paid their debt to society, are now contributing members of society and contributing to the freaking tax base. Well, I have a, a, a little update for you there. I'll give a little context for folks who may be listening in. Um, so the pandemic as a form of response, there were the stimulus check that went out to everyone um, to try to put a little income, income lost for everyone. And then there was the PPP loans, payroll protection program. These were for small businesses. Um, word got out that they were going to some larger businesses, but it was intended for small business to cushion the economic loss, service businesses that have been suffering through the pandemic. Question number six on the application was, do you have a prior felony? If you answered yes, you were immediately disqualified from receiving PPP loans. This is not new. This has been a job applications too. I mean, it's a similar. Oh yeah, this, it's the you know they call it the the last box on a job application is after you state all your qualifications and how you're qualified for this job. Oh, by the way, do you have have you had a felony conviction in the past? If you answer yes, the application is thrown up, um, thrown away, and torn up. So the reality is, is that part of the awful stigma behind prison and jail is that it's not just good enough that you serve your time. It's not just good enough that you put in the years, pay your debt to society, but when you're released from prison and jail, which by the way, 95% of people who serve time do release out. When you're released out, you have an unfair chance at receiving public housing. You have an unfair chance at receiving a job. And that is where the notion of recidivation or returning back to jail and prison comes in, of which in this country, around 70% of people end up recidivating. And why? Why? Because they don't have stable housing. They don't have access to a stable job. So the PPP loans came at a time when people needed to protect their payroll, be able to, to pay their employees. Systems impacted people, people, entrepreneurs with criminal histories. They're running maintenance businesses. They're you know, doing some essential things in society. These are the people that are task, taskers on TaskRabbit. They are delivery service employees. So how, do you, how are you keeping these businesses running if you're not entitled to the government um, protection programs? This is taxpayer money that is being used to discriminate, to discriminate against people with criminal, criminal histories. So as of last night, or I should say the wider context is the ACLU filed a lawsuit of which the organization, which you have participated and learned a lot about, Defy Ventures, was the lead plaintiff. That lawsuit took a big step forward yesterday, yesterday because now the SBA has recently revised the application. And there is less of a stigma or less of a um, high bar set for people with criminal histories to apply for the PP loans. Although our lawsuit will proceed, this is a big revelation that's come out in the last 24 hours. That's incredible. And, you know, I applaud, you know, the effort of everyone behind that. So what does that mean in, in action? So that means good folks reapply or is it, you know, moving forward, people, uh, you know, they're gonna be a little bit more lenient. Yeah, I hope if there's anyone in the audience that is uh, an impacted entrepreneur um, who might have ap applied, I hope they reapply. Um, you know, so that's something to look into immediately. Um, and if they want more information, they can uh, just go to Defy Ventures and go on the info page and uh, someone will reach out.
but absolutely yeah. that's something yeah. that is uh something that we're very very yeah we're gonna, we're gonna we're gonna link that up afterwards so i want to shift and, and and finish up our time here with some positivity i want to talk about the concept of you know allyship like what does it mean like how could we us the white population stand with our brothers and sisters and support and help and take action the best way what could we do well i mean look i think for me i think that this is it's such a gift to be alive at a time when we are living through upheaval and change um our governing institutions are being redefined with an idea and an eye towards greater equity and greater justice. And the truth is, it is an all oars moment uh, in history. You know, we need all oars to row this boat. And if there's anything that COVID has taught us is, especially I think we can speak for ourselves as New Yorkers, we really hunkered down, we acted as one, and we suffered through it, but we certainly skirted some of the more harmful effects of COVID by doing what we had to do. And I think together. that is the spirit together, exactly. And I think that's the spirit to how we can create a more just society is realizing it's not about you as a white person or me as a black person. It's about a system that is flawed and deeply in need of correction. And I, so I think... To that end, one thing that all of us, white and black, can do is better educate ourselves. We need to understand reading books like, um, I can't remember, you know what we should do? We should post a, uh, a, a glossary of books to read. We can link but, up anything you want to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there is so much good information right now on understanding the nature of systemic harm. Um, the New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Um, that begins to paint a picture, the 13th, the documentary, the 13th by Ava DuVarnay. It begins to help you understand um, a bit more than the evening news, how things have resulted the way they are in 2020, right? That is just one lane of understanding in mass incarceration. The same is true for understanding banking and finance in racial redlining. The same is true for health and public health outcomes that, you know, there's a reason why African-Americans have been disproportionately affected by COVID. So I think the first thing, Adam, is for us to educate ourselves. We've got to do a better job of realizing, you know, there's more than scratches the surface. Then the sec second thing is like, you came to, you know, you came into jail with me. I'm sure, as you said, it was outside of your comfort zone. However, you came away as a better person. I never expected you to agree with the work. You might have walked away and said, you know, that was the shittiest thing I've ever done. I hated it. I'm never coming back. However, you had an experience outside of your comfort zone. So I think we've got to begin to take chances. You know, like, honestly, learn about Black Lives Matter. Learn about different institutions you might not agree with them but better educate don't take the right. talking points from fox news or cnn right e like, equally jaded let's be fair about that equally jaded. just you know go Agendas. beneath the surface to realize you've got to educate yourself and form your own opinions be educated don't just listen to other people and and you know come to your own conclusions and ask questions and be open-minded open your eyes and ears and just listen for a moment and and for white people, it's not about us right now. It's not. And that's the whole thing when, when people say all lives matter versus black lives matter. I don't want to get down that because I think that's been clarified. I think, you know, everyone's like making all the analogies around that. <laughs> the, one, the one I love is um, black lives matter is like saying save the whales. And then the other fish in the sea are like save all animal, you know, animal life fish. in the sea. It's like, yeah, that too, but we're just saying the whale numbers are depleting right now, so we're just focusing on the whale. Oh, the, can the cancer walk analogy, I mean, it's all over. So I want to I end on a positive note here. So a couple of questions for you, my friend. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about silver linings. And it's kind of interesting because I have one kind of silver lining, which I don't know if it's really there, that's kind of floating around my head. Like, 
if we didn't have the COVID crisis that brought it all together, would we still be able to facilitate this conversation and movement and moment in America the same way? The fact that we were all brought together with a commonality, now we could focus on the next issue at hand in a better, more effective way. I mean, I'm kind of playing around with that thought in my head. Like, maybe I, I it was meant to be. Maybe you. it was meant to be for us to make to impact change. Maybe we all had to go through that same shit together, get on the same page that we're all screwed. And while we're all screwed, let's work on some other shit going on. I, I mean, I'm not gonna. I'm not a social scientist, but I'm not gonna disagree with you. I think that um, folks who have been laid off from work. Um, sheltering in place with COVID and now you flip on your phone and you're seeing some really horrific images. You know, I, I would go one step further. I think one of the sad ways that we are creating separate Americas is through social media, right? Because I can't tell you, I don't know what your timeline looks like every morning, but I tell you, I wake up depressed because my timeline is police brutality incident after police brutality incident. I think some of my white friends get the happy cat and dog videos, whereas I sadly am confronting last night's police brutality incidents, right? So I think to your point, here is a moment where we're all brought into the same reality and seeing systemic harm that needs to be changed. So I think it has been a silver lining. And what about, for, what about for you, Marcus? What are some silver linings personally that you've experienced well, throughout the last, and I'm going I'm to put them together, silver linings over the last hundred days of COVID and all the you know, racial unrest in this country? Well, I'll, I'll give you one better. Um, I'll give you a silver lining that started about five years, for, five years ago. Um, five years ago, probably at this point in the summer, was another turning point for our country. Um, we were faced with the murder of Trayvon Martin. We were faced with the murder of Mike Brown. Um, we were faced with uh, so, uh, Philando Castile and so many others. And I think if you remember, it was the summer that we all watched on CNN and Fox, the protests in Ferguson, the protests in Baltimore, and we were seeing the distraught faces of, you know, people of all colors who were distraught by what was happening in the world. And it was a moment, I think, if you recall, we were all asking ourselves, what can I do to change? And what, what can I do to make a contribution? Many took the front lines of protests. For me, it was a point that I began to research trauma and the criminal justice system more deeply. And so five years ago was a turning point in my life that five years later, I can show up on the podcast with you and talk about the substantive work. In the past five years, I will say even better, in 2019 alone, I was fortune, the fortune of my life to be able to hand out over 300 diplomas, certificates, of entrepreneurship and job readiness to people behind bars. Okay. I personally I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand. I was there for a graduation. It's it's incredible to watch from the sideline. And I can't even imagine the feeling of, of you and the feeling of these men and women receiving that diploma from all their hard work and getting a legitimate second chance, a legitimate first chance again. Exactly. And so what I want to say to your audience is. Folks may be asking themselves, yeah, Adam's good guy, Marcus, he, you know, he's saying some good points, but what can I do? The point is that you are so important to where we go from here. I can't emphasize that enough, how important, whether it's, you know, going home and having difficult conversations, dinner table conversations with relatives and friends who you know um, have bogus points of view, um, whether you decide to use your you know, professional training in an advocacy capacity, which is what I did, whether you join the front lines, whether you send a donation, it's a chance where, as I said, all oars are in the water. And that I'm truly optimistic about, that five years from now, 
if everyone makes a commitment today that we'll see even greater change in the world. I will tell you firsthand, I didn't know, I was actually embarrassed as a 40 something year old black man that I didn't know half of what I know now about the levels of criminal criminalization, over policing, the nature of mass incarceration. I didn't know any of this, but I've used the five years to not only educate myself, but to go inside and to have firsthand experiences to know that there is a difference. And so I hope that that is what your audience takes away. I love it. And Marcus, I ask every guest on my show this, this last question, you know, in, in times of, you know, when, when things are not going well in, in times of, of just, <sighs> shit's not going well, let's leave it at that in, 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 in the bad times and you need to pull yourself up. And on the flip side of that, when you want to show extreme gratitude for everything that's incredible in your life, what do you look to? Marcus Glover, what is your North Star? Um, wow, that's a great question. My North Star, um, I have to be honest, my ancestors, bro. Um, look, you know, the average length traveling from the coast of Africa to America was three to four months in the hull of a ship, dark, diseased, infested, um, packed like sardines or worse, laying in one's excrement. Um, these were the most dehumanizing circumstances that, you know, just absolutely paint the worst in humanity that we could be towards each other. And yet we lived. We lived where in 2020, I can be, you know, sitting in front of a computer talking to my good friend, Adam, you know? So my ancestors, I will tell you that whatever hardship we think there is, your ancestors, Adam, your ancestors endured greater. My ancestors endured greater. So they are, to me, I hope that if anything, anyone takes away from this, turn to your ancestors. Marcus Clever, gratitude, respect. Thank you. Thanks, We're going to link up everybody. This has been a tremendous conversation. I hope that everybody could take away a feeling, an action, momentum. Take that action. Have these conversations. And I hope that we could show an example here. And we're still friends. We did it, man. Marcus Glover, thank you so much. Thanks, man. It was fun. Wisdom is forever. But for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Pausecast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>